Well, good evening. We will make a start tonight. I'm going to do it a little bit different from what I announced last week. I thought last week I would do Richard Greenham, but I think what I'm going to do is um, take the story of the Puritan movement up until the 1640s. And then we're going to go back next week and look at two Puritan leaders, early Puritan leaders, Richard Greenham, uh, who, as I think I indicated last week, is a fairly unknown figure, but he's kind of a typical Puritan leader in the early years. And then uh, Richard Sibbs, who is a much more well-known figure, although you may well think I've never heard of him either. And, uh, but he's a much more known uh, figure. And uh, so what I'm going to do then tonight is I'll do a very quick recap about where we've been. Uh, we basically took the story up to the reign of, uh, the end of the reign of Elizabeth I, which sees the Puritan movement emerging um, in uh, the Church of England. And then I'm going to take, pick up from there and take it through to the 1640s. Uh, in the uh, 1640s, it's a period, as one author has described it, when the world, at least in the British Isles and Ireland, was turned upside down, and you'll, you'll see why. But uh, first, uh, we'll, we'll pray. Again, our Father, we give you thanks for this night, uh, for the privilege of having a, a rich heritage on which we can draw from. And we pray that as we think together about those who are being called Puritans, uh, you would help us to not only understand their world better, uh, a little bit about themselves, but that what we think about them and what we learn from them would help us in our walk with you. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay, so last day we began looking at uh, the Puritan movement. This is, uh, uh, this picture is uh, in some ways in a kind of an ideal kind of illustrative picture. Uh, the caption on this picture, I don't think we know who it is, uh, is simply called a Puritan woman. And uh, somewhere in the 1630s. Um, in a couple of weeks, uh, we'll look at a woman named Brilliana Harley and the sort of uh, dress that she's wearing, uh, Brilliana would have uh, definitely worn because she's alive in the 1630s. So what we did last week was we basically uh, introduced uh, the subject of Puritanism. And uh, I talked a little bit about uh, what is Puritanism. There's a lot of debates. Uh, the debates don't, shy any, don't show any signs of abetting. Uh, about what, what exactly is the Puritan movement? Uh, what were they about? And uh, there are a number of uh, historians who see the Puritan movement primarily about reforming the Church of England. Uh, they were men and women within the Church of England who were not happy with the worship of the Church of England. And uh, that's their initial complaints. And then they were not happy with the governance of the Church of England. Uh, one of the challenges the Puritans will have is they believe uh, very firmly that there is a blueprint of how to do church, how to govern the church in the New Testament. And uh, that conviction will eventually lead the Puritans to splinter among themselves, uh, mainly into three groups. Uh, Presbyterians, um, who we'll talk a little bit about, uh, Congregationalists, and then Baptists. 
And uh, so one of the reasons why, uh, I mentioned this briefly, it'll come up at the end today, one of the reasons why we as Baptists are interested in studying the Puritans is because Baptists, their roots are in the Puritan movement. And there's a lot about the Puritans, if you understand the Puritans, oh, okay, I understand why Baptists uh, think along the certain lines. Um, and then I also mentioned briefly the, Puritan, the word Puritan. It's not a compliment. Um, it's a negative term. It was used first in the English language. The first recorded usage is around 1563. And that makes sense because the earliest Puritans were men and women who had fled England during the 1550s when the Queen of England, Mary I, was an ardent Roman Catholic who was convinced that if she eliminated, physically eliminated, uh, about a thousand people in England, the, all of the key leaders of uh, the Protestantism or evangelicalism uh, in England, she would be able to lead England back to the Roman Church. Um, she was, at best, that view is myopic. At worst, it led to enormous bloodshed in England. Um, during the Middle Ages, um, England, like other European countries, would have seen the occasional, quote-unquote, heretic burned, maybe once every 10, 15 years. Uh, what Mary plunged in England into was a maelstrom of burning of men and women, initially key leaders, um, all of the bishops of England that she could arrest, she arrested and tried them and burned them. But once she had gone, gone through the key leaders, some university teachers, she then descended to arresting uh, what might, one might describe as ordinary men and women. And um, the long and the short of all of that persecution was it drove deeper into the soul of the English-speaking people the conviction that the Roman Catholic Church was a tyrannical, murderous body. It didn't bring them back to Rome at all. And so when uh, Mary dies of ovarian cancer in the early, 15, fifth, early 1558, she is succeeded by her sister, half-sister Elizabeth, Elizabeth I, and England, most of England, is absolutely thrilled to bits, and they call England their Deborah. And the men and women who had fled England during the reign of Mary come back. Um, they, love, they love Elizabeth. She's their Deborah, if you remember Deborah from Judges. But their, their uh, exuberance about Elizabeth only is short-lived because within four or five years, they've got issues with Elizabeth. And Elizabeth, theologically, it's interesting why Christians differ from each other. Uh, theologically, Elizabeth and the Puritans agree on a host of issues. What they disagree on is who has the final say about how you do church. And she's the head of the church, as far as she's concerned. She's deeply convinced that one day she'll stand before the Lord and have to give an account as to how she ran England. Uh, she believes in what's called the divine right of kings. When she was uh, crowned queen, she was anointed. I don't know if you remember, if you saw any of the Charles's uh, coronation. Um, I ended up watching all five, six hours of it. It was, I'm thinking at some point, I thought, I, I, forget, I, I, I think I must have gotten up early to watch it. And I think, I'm like, what on earth am I doing? I need to go back to bed or whatever. Anyway, I stayed and watched the whole shebang. 
And there was part of it where they anointed him. It's, uh, and that, that kind of ceremony goes, uh, has roots, at least in, it, in the minds of those who do it, all the way back to the anointing of the kings of uh, Israel. And uh, so she was anointed, divine, divinely appointed, and uh, in a sense, she was above the law. Oh, she was the law. And this will cause all kinds of issues for the Puritans. And uh, the Puritans, by and large, don't agree with that. There are some Puritans who do. They see the monarch as the head of the church. Most of them do not. And uh, that then becomes another issue of complaint. There'll be a third issue, which we'll look at uh, today in more detail. And uh, so that's really where we got to. Um, we got to here, Thomas Cartwright uh, and the origins of Presbyterianism. Thomas Cartwright was a Puritan um, teacher at the University of Cambridge. There are two universities in England, uh, Cambridge and Oxford. Uh, both of them go back. Uh, Cambridge was founded in 1209, Oxford about 100 years or so earlier than that. So they're very old schools. Uh, both of them, they're the, they are the two schools that train ministers. And uh, Thomas Cartwright was a professor of theology. And in a series of uh, lectures he gave on the book of Acts, he publicly declared that the Bible knows nothing about bishops, let alone a monarch being the head of the church. Um, he was able to teach the rest of the term, and then he was silenced. Um, he was fired from the university. And uh, what often happens with these men is when they, if they, they run into trouble in England, they, they go over the English Channel or the North Sea to Holland. Uh, the Netherlands was a bastion of religious toleration. And so he goes to Amsterdam for a couple of years until it kind of things die down and then returns to England. Uh, but they, what he's done is he's, he's taught a number of students in his classes that Presbyterianism is the way in which the church shall be governed. Most of the early Puritans are Presbyterian. Now, that is, they do not believe bishops are a separate group above them. Bishops and presbyters or bishops and elders are the same person in their minds. And the church is to be governed by elders and elders are to appoint elders. Elders are not to be appointed by the queen, definitely. And they're not to be appointed by bishops, because bishops are simply elders. And so they want to dismantle the whole Episcopal structure in England. Uh, they were encouraged in this by Scotland. The Scots had already done this with John Knox. And the Scottish church, there's an established church in Scotland. It is Presbyterian. And so the Puritans uh, are looking to Scotland. They, they see the Scottish Puritans, as, in their mind, as having accomplished what they'd love to do. But once you raise the question, it's interesting. It, the, once you raise the question, how should the church be governed, um, you're going to get, you've opened a bit of a Pandora's box, if you know what that old story was about Pandora's box, a gift that had all kinds of stuff in it, not always good. Um, but it's kind of out of Pandora's box. It's interesting in England, it doesn't happen in Scotland. I'm not sure the Scottish mindset, but it doesn't happen in Scotland. But in England, once you open the door, okay, once you raise the question, how should the church be governed? By that I mean, uh, who has the final authority in the church? Who appoints pastors? Um, who appoints 
deacons, who appoints uh, people to preach, who decides where large sums of money are to be spent. So, you know, if tomorrow the roof completely collapsed on this building, gosh forbid, you know, that's going to be a ton of money. Um, Jarvis Street Baptist Church in Toronto, which I uh, know fairly well, uh, it's an 1874 building. And if you go in the basement and you see the, uh, the furnace, it looks like one of these octopuses, you know, <laughs> stuff. And it started going a few years ago, and you're looking at probably half a million. You know, they, they had some, they had some weep, um, uh, seepage problems along one side, the north side of the church, and I think it was, a, again, about three-quarters of a million, a, th- a third of a million, to kind of go down, put weeping towels in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so... You, you can't just have the, you know, the elders, well, it, it's a congregationalist context, and so the elders can't just decide, we're going to spend $300,000, they have to go to the congregation and discuss it. But who makes those sorts of decisions? In a Presbyterian context, the elders do. And the elders don't and consult the people uh, for that. Uh, Baptists are Congregationalists, and Congregationalists emerge in the 1590s in England because once you've asked the question, who should govern the church, some people start to go to the New Testament. Aha! Look at Acts chapter 6 when the apostles come across a problem in the Jerusalem church and the Jewish Christian widows are being taken care of, but the, the, no, no, the Aramaic-speaking Jewish Christian widows are being taken care of, but the Greek-speaking Jewish Christian widows are not. And so the apostles say, well, you choose out seven men, and uh, in other words, the congregation chose them, and the apostles then laid hands on them. So certain people in the 1590s uh, looked at that and said, ah, the congregation has the final say, not the elders. And once you move down that path, you're raising all kinds of other issues. Because in the Episcopal system, bishops, um, and in the Presbyterian system, both of those views believed in a state church. Which means that the state and the church are welded together like that. And the state supports the church. The state enforces things in the church. And uh, everybody baptized in the church, that's your citizenship. And so in parts of Europe today, you still have state churches where everybody pays taxes that support the minister of local churches. I mean, one of the reasons for the why, the re, one of the reasons why Europeans, a lot of Europeans want nothing to do with Christianity is because they're forced to, in their taxes to pay for the support of a local parish church. They want nothing to do with it. Uh, but once you move down the road of congregationalism, congregationalism will argue the only people who should be members of a local church are believers. In the pres- in the, uh, please don't worry. We're not talking about today. This is, this is early Presbyterianism and classical Episcopalianism, bishops and ruled by bishops and ruled by elders. They both believe in a state church where everybody born in England is a member of the church. So let's, let's pretend this is a, an Anglican church. Uh, we'll call it St. West Highland, right? 
So this is an Anglican church, St. West Highland. Everybody bought, there's no other, there's no other churches within a five-mile radius of St. West Highland. And everybody born within this parish is automatically a member of this church. And you're brought to this church when you're a baby, and you're baptized here, and you're automatically a member. And in both the Episcopal and the Presbyterian system, if you don't turn up on, on Sunday, the minister, if he's zealous, will turn up your house. And there are laws on the book. If you don't turn up so many weeks in a row, you'll be fined. And if that happens three months running, you then will be brought before the court to give an explanation, a legal court, to give an explanation why you're not in church. And if you can't give one, you might be imprisoned. All right? This is a... This, this is a we're back, in, we're back in the 1500s. This is a Christian nation. Right? You've got to go to church. So that's, the, that's both... So the Episcopalian system and the Presbyterian system... Don't, the Presbyterian Puritans don't agree with the Episcopalians because they don't want the bishops. They want elders appointing elders. But the rule in the church, it's not only led by elders, it's ruled by elders. And they still want the state church. Scotland, it's a state church. Now, if your minister is not zealous, he won't give, give a hoot whether you're here or not. And there are places like, there are going to be examples of that. Um, congregationalism comes along. And it says, no, 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 no. When we look at the New Testament, there's only believers in the New Testament. Everybody has joined the church. And their argument then will be, uh, we're not dragooning everybody around here. That's like a, a conscripted army. Um, I noticed an, a British general just announced, this is kind of scary, that he wants to bring back conscription in England because of the possibility on the horizon of war with Russia. I don't know if you've followed any of it. Finland and Sweden have already indicated this concern. Um, we pray to God that that doesn't happen. Uh, we haven't had conscription in Canada since the Second World War. When we did, we had a huge crisis because Quebec refused to go along with it. And um, so in an in a Episcopalian system and in a, a uh, Presbyterian system, it's like conscription. You know, I, I, I just happen to be born in England. I, I don't want to be an Anglican. Well, too bad. You're now part of the Anglican Church. You got baptized as a baby. You're part of the Anglican Church. Congregations come along. They, they will still baptize infants, but in their thinking, the baptism of an infant is a sign that the infant will embrace down the road, and the only infants they will baptize are the infants of believers who are members of the church. So if you're, let's say, Tom, Dick, and... I was going to say Tom, Dick, and Harry. <laughs> no, Tom and Martha. <laughs> <laughs> that was a mistake, you know. As soon as you say Tom, Dick, and Harry, and the, no, no, Tom and Martha turn up to the church and they want their baby baptized. Well, if neither of them are members of the church, in the uh, congregationalist view, we're not baptizing your baby. But if you're members, we'll baptize your baby. And uh, so some of the Puritans become congregationalists. Well, the congregationalist vision is the congregation is the, the final authority. The congregation appoints elders. The congregation dismisses elders. 
The congregation doesn't need the state. We're not tied to the state. So where do we get these convictions that of separation of church and state? The state is a divinely appointed um, institution, but I hope you believe it has no right dictating to us within the church about how we should do church, um, etc. And so some of, the, some of that conviction goes back to this period where congregationalists become convinced, number one, uh, the rule in a church are the, is the congregation. And uh, now some of the Presbyterians and the Anglicans will say, that's just like mob rule. That's complete anarchy. Um, it's not. It, and uh, they, they're thinking about uh, their disagreement with the whole idea of democracy. But um, local churches... When we argue for the congregation as the final authority in the life of the church, it's not a democracy. What we're seeking to do uh, by that sort of statement is all of us have a role to play in prayer and presenting our opinion at critical church meetings. And what we're seeking to do as a body, all of us, is to find God's will. In the, in the Presbyterian model, well, only the elders have to find God's will. The people, the people aren't brought into the discussion at all. And uh, sometimes that's frustrating in Baptist circles. Um, I remember one, a, a student I taught, I won't mention who he is. He's still pastoring in Toronto. Not, he's not in Toronto. He's in Ontario. And uh, I taught him. And he joined a group in Ontario, won't mention who, uh, who are, they're really Presbyterian. They're not congregationalists. They never have church meetings. The elders decide everything. I remember meeting him at NBC, Muskoka Bible Center, and he said to me, I have, when he had been appointed pastor of this church, very large church, somewhere in southern Ontario, he said, I, he said to me, I have kissed congregationalism goodbye. He says, finally, no more church meetings, don't have to worry about all that, you know, all the business. And brilliant. There's five of us elders. We decide everything. And I, I was a bit horrified, to be honest. I'm looking like, really? That's not what I taught you. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Some people, you know, when they, they you, 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 I've, it doesn't happen often, but sometimes people say, you know, didn't so-and-so go to your seminary or Bible college? Yeah, but we're not responsible for everything. They do, once they get out. And, um, but this is, this is a critical issue. You know, how does the, how is the church govern? And um, so some then become congregationalists. And then once you raise the question, all of those in congregationalist Puritan churches, they were all baptized in the Church of England. So is my infant baptism in the Church of England valid? Not because it's infant baptism, but because it's done in the Church of England, and some of the congregations start to think the Church of England's not a true church. She's not the Roman church. Everybody knows the Roman church is the Antichrist, this period. The Church of England isn't the Antichrist, but she sure looks like the Antichrist. You know, she's got bishops, and they wear robes, and et cetera, et cetera. And so is my baptism as a baby valid in that church? And once you raise that question, then you're opening other doors. In the New Testament, 
about believer's baptism and infant baptism and so on. So that's, that's some background to where Baptists come from. I'll touch on it again at the end of our time. So Elizabeth dies. So by the 1590s, Puritanism has major arguments with Anglicanism, Episcopalianism, but it's also got arguments among themselves. And driving them is all of, all of the Puritans believe there is one form of church government in the New Testament. And I personally don't believe that. I don't think, I'm a Congregationalist. Um, I think Presbyterianism has a lot to say for it, but I think I'm not a, car, I'm not a Presbyterian. I don't believe in a state church, definitely. But very few Presbyterians do today either. When Presbyterianism came to North America, uh, they used the Westminster Confession of Faith and they changed one of the articles in there to indicate they no longer believed in the idea of a state church. Um, but I, I'm not... Churches are governed differently and God has often blessed varieties of churches. And we have to recognize that there is a... I think there's room for freedom in how we actually work out... How do we actually do church in terms of details? But the Puritans were convinced there's a model here and not surprisingly, they couldn't agree. And so by the, by the 1590s, there's differences with the state church and there's differences among themselves. And um, that brings the story then, we'll jump ahead to this man, James I. So James I is not English, he's Scottish. And... Um, Elizabeth and James had an arrangement. He was her second cousin. And the arrangement was if Elizabeth died without children, he, he would inherit the throne. If he died without children, she would inherit the throne of Scotland. And um, she's much older than he. She's probably about 35 years older than James. So it's more likely that he was going to inherit. It was a great deal for him because he would inherit a much larger kingdom, um, etc. And uh, she dies in 1603, and he becomes appointed, he is automatically appointed the King of England. He is James VI of Scotland, of the House of Stuart, and he will become James I of England. And he's a very canny, good Scottish word, he's a very canny politician. And uh, on his way down England, by the way, some of the English would have had hard, a difficulty understanding him. Um, he's, he would have had a thick Scottish accent. He would have been speaking um, what's known as Braid Scots, kind of a, uh, it's, it's, a it's more than a dialect. It's, it's, it's a really a distinct language. And uh, they would have had trouble at times understanding his accent. Um, he's married to a Dane, state marriage, Danish, uh, Princess uh, his queen is Queen Anne of Denmark, and um, he has a number of children, um, as we will see. Um, on his way down to, to, to England in 1603, he's met by a group of Puritans who've got a petition. It's called the Millinery Petition. A thousand names on the petition. A thousand Puritan ministers in England signed the petition for the king to reform the church. The Puritans are thrilled to bits. 
He's a Presbyterian, <laughs> right? Oh, they were thrilled with Elizabeth. Yeah, she let them down big time. They're now thrilled a bit. They've got a Presbyterian Puritan who's going to reform the church. Brilliant. What they don't know is he can't stand Presbyterianism because he's had about 3,000 elders in Scotland he's had to deal with. And he loves the idea of Elizabeth. This room seats about 75 to 80. Elizabeth had 25 bishops. All she had to do was get them in. I mean, get them in this section. Okay, you know, fellows, this is what we're going to do in the church. It's great. I mean, there's, there's no, there was no building big enough in England to get all the ministers. Uh, and uh, James thinks this is brilliant. You know, I've given all those troublesome presbyters and I've got 25 bishops to deal with. And so they don't know that. He's not going to tell them that either. And so he gets his petition. He want, the, the Puritans want to reform the church. And he says, uh, why don't we have a conference? And you can voice your complaints. It's known as the Hampton Court Conference. It had took place in January 1604, over a week, a Monday, a Wednesday, and a Friday with the key sessions. And uh, before the conference began, the Archbishop of Canterbury came in, apparently threw himself at James's knees, pled with him, don't listen to these Puritans. They're just troublemakers. We, we shouldn't have had the conference to begin with. But since you're going to go ahead with it, don't listen to them. James says, well, of course I'm going to listen to them. I, that's why I brought them here. I want to find out what their complaints are. Um, he has no intention, by the way, of listening to them. He's just a very, he's just a very wily man. So the Puritans come. They've got, they've got a variety of things they want reformed. They want the, the power of the bishops diminished. Well, James is not going to do that. Uh, they have problems in the fact in the worship service in the Church of England, the Book of Common Prayer, there are readings from the Apocrypha. Well, they don't like the Apocrypha. It's not inspired. Why are we, risk, why are we reading that? Um, they don't like the idea of coming up to the altar rail to receive the Lord's Supper and kneeling. Uh, why do we have to do that? We did it when we were, you know, the Roman Catholics do it because they believe the very body and blood of Christ is in the bread and the wine. We don't believe that. None of us believe that. So why are we doing that? It's a hangover from the past. We want to get rid of that. Um, I don't have one on uh, because I had to take it off because my knuckle is getting too big, but a wedding ring. Right? Uh, wedding rings, are they biblical? I remember at a wedding, Allison will remember this, uh, the minister before he gave the ring said something like, you know, the ring is round, it's got no beginning, no end, and so should your love for each other be, and it's great, but there's no indication that anybody in the ancient world used wedding rings. Wedding rings actually are from Germanic paganism, and the Puritans, we don't want any of that. I mean, it's pagan. I mean, so they wanted, yeah, they want to get rid of wedding rings. It's very interesting. Scottish Presbyterian men don't wear wedding rings. My father-in-law, who was Scottish, never wore a wedding ring. It goes all the way back to this period. When the Presbyterians in Scotland, no wedding rings uh, at all. In the, uh, now, by the 20th century, women were wearing them, men were not. Um, I, think, well, I think the Puritans are wrong for us today. Uh, I don't live in the 1500s. This uh, is the t- early 21st century where marriage is under attack. So I think wedding rings are fine. You know, I fully agree with them. Um, not everything. You might think, by the way, I've, I've got a lot of things I like about the Puritans. doesn't mean I agree with them on everything. 
Um, and on that issue, I wouldn't. Anyway, the, the debates are going on. On the, on the Wednesday evening, as it was getting dark, it's January, so it's, getting, it's England, so it's getting dark around 3 in the afternoon. The sun's going down, and one Puritan there, I've never figured out why he said this. Moreover, he said, his name is John Reynolds, we want a new translation of the Bible. And the king liked that. Yeah, I like that one. Because the Bible that they used in Scotland and in England, the Puritans used, was the Geneva Bible. I talked about the last day. And they didn't like the, the king didn't like the Geneva Bible because there are all kinds of notes in it. Notes like, for instance, the one I mentioned was in Exodus, where it said in Exodus chapter 1, with the Hebrew midwives disobeying Pharaoh, it actually says in the margin, were the Hebrew midwives right to disobey Pharaoh? And the answer is, yes, it is better to obey God rather than man. And James didn't like that at all. Gave people, gave, gives people the idea they could disobey the king. You cannot disobey the king. The king his word is law. And so when, the, when John Reynolds said, and I've never figured out why John Reynolds said this, but uh, when he said, let's have a new translation, I, want, I, I like that. The other, the other things, you know, wedding rings, uh, the altar rail, bishops, he basically said, okay, why don't, we, why don't we create a few committees and we'll have the committees study these things and we'll have study papers, etc., etc." Who's on the committees? Mostly bishops. <laughs> They're not going to change a thing. And nothing the Puritans wanted got changed. But for about 10 to 15 years, you know, when the Puritans raise issues, you're like, what's happening? These, it's in committee. Trust me. We're talking about it. He's, he's really wily. Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't come out and tell them exactly what he's up to, but he's basically burying all this stuff. The one thing he does want to get done is the translation of the Bible. And so in 1604, he appoints three, three teams, one in Oxford, one in Cambridge, one in London at, at Westminster. Uh, all of the leading scholars of the land, Hebrew and Greek scholars, except for one Hebrew scholar, Hugh Broughton. He was probably the, the best Hebrew scholar in the land, but they refused to appoint him because he couldn't agree with anybody. I mean, he was just a, a pain. And uh, when the Bible is eventually produced, 1611, he writes a, a review of it. And he says, it's the worst translation in the world. He says, what we need to do of it, we need to take them all out and burn them all. Well, thankfully, KJV was not, nobody listened to him. I mean, he was just, he couldn't get along with anybody. And everybody knew if you put him on a committee to translate part of the Old Testament, they'll be there till the next 50 years with this guy. I mean, he just was a very uh, obstinate, obstreperous, that's your word for the day, obstreperous individual. And um, so the committees worked. We, we don't have any, uh, um, uh, any indication of details until 1610. The three committees were to produce their final, uh, one worked on parts of the Old Testament, one works on parts of the New, and the other on the other part of the Old Testament. And then they were to bring them all together. And a final committee would work for a year. And one of the men on that committee was a man named John Boys, B-O-Y-S or B-O-I-S. He was a professor at Cambridge of Hebrew. Um, he was paid so much to go up to London for so many weeks every, uh, for a whole year and a half. Um, he never really got fully reimbursed for all of his uh, expenses. Uh, he kept notes of the discussions. 
And it's fascinating to see his discussions of, say, certain parts of the book of Hebrews, which we, uh, we have his notes for, where he's, he's discussing the actual words that are now in the King James Version and suggestions. And it's interesting to see the going back and forth as to how they arrived at um, uh, the final product. Uh, the final product is this. Uh, the Holy Bible concerning the, containing the old and, new, and the new, newly translated out of the original tongues, and with the former translations diligently compared, and I'm not sure what that says. Uh, oh, ratified. Ratified by His Majesty's special commandment. And uh, in the year 1611. And uh, you'll notice... All of these are symbols. This is, this is Moses here. Uh, sorry, this is Moses. That's to be a high priest. This is a pelican feeding her young. That's a very classic symbol of Christ. Uh, the pelican was believed. Uh, you often see pelican on Christian, uh, classical Christian uh, paintings or sculpture. It was often believed that when in times of famine, the pelican had little babies. The mother pelican would peck her breast to produce, to get blood, and she would feed her, her babies with uh, her own blood. And so that, it's not true. But the pelican becomes a, becomes a model of Christ. And uh, this is uh, Yahweh, Jehovah, the Holy Spirit, and various uh, figures. Here's the triumphant lamb. Um, uh, again, representation of Christ. There is no picture here of our Lord, which is interesting. Um, so that um, <clears throat> was published. Um, it made slow headway in the initial years. The Puritans didn't like the Bible. They didn't like it because they didn't have notes. They much preferred the Geneva Bible. It took about 40 years before it started to be used by Puritans. The first major Puritan to use it is uh, John Bunyan in the 1650s, who we'll look at later. And um, it's got some very interesting versions. Uh, in the year 1612, well, there's one version, um, mystic, it's known as the Wicked Bible. Um, in the Decalogue, it missed out the word not in the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. So it missed the word not there. <laughs> <laughs> so it's known as the Wicked Bible. If you happen to get one of those, it's worth a ton of money. I mean, millions. Um, then there was one, that was probably a typographical error. Uh, there was one Bible which, um, you'd you think men wouldn't do this, but this guy did. Uh, he, he had a real problem with printers. And he was a, must have been a, a typesetter. And um, in the passage, it's in the Psalms, Princes have persecuted me without cause. He changed the word princes to printers. <laughs> and I'm not, they printed a whole run of them before somebody found it. And, um, but probably the most interesting one is the 1612 edition, where there's a verse in Ruth where it says, he went into the city, but some of them have, she went into the city. It's a typo. And so you've got she Bibles and he Bibles. <laughs> And I have a very close friend <clears throat> who um, uh, collects 
books like this. And he was in, in 2001, he was in the Trump Tower in New York City, an antiquarian bookseller. And uh, he saw a she Bible for, I think it was, a, it was a she, it was a he Bible with a he for $60,000, US dollars. So he phoned me and he said, do you think that's a good price? <laughs> I said, I haven't got a clue. And I said, but I know somebody who knows somebody who does. So I phoned this friend, a man named Kurt Daniel, and he put me in touch with an antiquarian bookseller in Philadelphia. So I phoned this guy and he says to me, no, no, it's not a good price at all. Uh, come down with your friend and I'll sell it to your friend for 30,000. He says, uh, I, sell those, I sell Bibles like that to that store. So off we went to his house and we were supposed to spend the morning there. We spent the whole day there. It was just, it was incredible. When we got there, he said he was rejoicing. His son had just moved out about a week earlier. He said, we've got room now for more books. <laughs> hey, come upstairs and let me show you. And we're going upstairs and you're threading your way through books, piles of books all the way up the stairs. We come into this bedroom and he had made quick work of it. There were books on the bed, books all over the floor, whatever. And um, in that morning, I've never forgotten the morning, he showed me a first edition of, every, he showed us, my friend and I, a first edition of every Bible that was printed in England in, in the 16th century. Uh, by the time he finished, he had about <clears throat> 12 or 14 of them. The only one he didn't have was the 1526 Tyndale New Testament, which I mentioned last day. There's only three in the world. But everyone else, he had a first edition. There were millions of dollars just sitting on that table. And uh, my friend eventually bought the 30,000, uh, the He Bible, and he bought um, uh, Charles Darwin's Origin of Species, signed by Charles Darwin, first edition, for about 8,000. And then he bought John Newton's personal copy of the debates in Parliament to end the slave trade, in which Newton filled it with marginalia, like notes on the margins. He paid about 6000 for that. That was, worth, that was actually worth more than the, the Bible, because that was a unique, unique book. And uh, it was a very interesting day. Um, as the morning wore on, um, it became obvious we weren't going to make our flight, especially when he pressed it. You got to stay for lunch. And then we had to stay for dinner. His poor wife was, uh, they're staying for lunch, dear. <laughs> they're staying for dinner. It was, anyway, it was a very interesting day. I've never forgotten it. And um, <clears throat> so that's like kind of my encounter with 1611 uh, King James versions. Um, during his reign, the Puritans become kind of quiet. He's able to keep them in check. Um, but he dies in 1625, and his eldest son, this man, Charles I, becomes the king. Uh, this is his wife. She is a French Roman Catholic princess, Henrietta Maria. And there's two problems with that. Number one, she's a Roman Catholic. And in the 17th century, it's not yet there, but it's getting there. To be English is to be Protestant. It becomes part, one of the things we, we wrestle with, well, I hope you wrestle with it. I, I've thought a lot about it in, rec in recent years. What does it mean to be a Canadian? And it doesn't help us say, well, we're not Americans. We're not. But what does it mean to be a Canadian? Well, I'm an immigrant. I came here not, not of my own free choice. My dad and mom came here. I didn't want to come here. Uh, I had a very difficult time adapting to Canada when I came. 
Um, the food was different. Um, peas, for instance, in England don't have sugar, any sugar in them. Uh, they do here, obviously. That, and uh, Anyway, um, but over the last few years, especially as I've taught in the States, and beginning in 2016, and you can figure out what happened that year, uh, I found it difficult at times in the States, even with fellow evangelicals. Um, I'm increasingly, I don't understand them, and they don't understand me. I remember one of my PhD students uh, saying to me, are you a socialist? <laughs> because of my views on health. And, Dorette, did you have a question? No? Okay, sorry. I saw your, uh, and I, okay. Um, <clears throat> I'll have time for questions at the end. Um, what does it mean to be a Canadian? Well, in the 1600s, Englishmen and Englishwomen are hammering out, what does it mean to be English? And by the end of that century, it means to be Protestant. If you're Catholic, you're not English. We are, we're Protestants. And so that's a, that's a problem. And then um, Charles is not like his father. His father's a really canny politician. Um, Charles isn't that at all. He's, he doesn't know how to do politics. He, doesn't know how, he will not know how to control the Puritans. Um, he's a complete disaster politically. But he's also very different from his father, and I won't make much of this. His father's bisexual. His father is, has a number of homosexual lovers. Uh, don't ever raise this. I wouldn't raise this if you're ever in a debate with somebody who believes in the KJV as the inspired version. Uh, oh, yeah, you know, the movie, you know, something about that King James. No, no, it, it, we know that now. I don't know how many of the Puritans would have known that. Uh, Charles is a fabulous husband. His children adore him. And uh, we'll see it's, it's a poignant story when we get to the end of his life. Um, <clears throat> but politically, he's a disaster. But he believes the same as his father, divine right of kings. His word is law. And during the 1620s, when he becomes king, becomes king in 1625, he'll reign in 1649, he appoints this man, William Laud, L-A-U-D, as the Archbishop of Canterbury. And William Laud has two main things in his life. Number one, he thinks the Reformation went far too far. Um, we shouldn't have kicked out half the stuff we did at the time of the Reformation. And uh, he wants to bring back a number of ceremonies that really, to the average person, it, they look like Roman Catholic. In addition to that, he's an Arminian. And uh, so let me say a little bit about Arminianism. <clears throat> Arminianism emerges in the Netherlands in the first decade of the 1600s uh, with Arminius or Jakob Hermann Zoom. And uh, Jakob Hermann Zoom was a parish minister who was also a university professor. He had gone to Geneva. He had studied theology in the heartland of Calvinism, but he had come back and had become convinced that, number one, you can lose your salvation. He, he always believed in total depravity, but you can lose your salvation. And number two, didn't Christ die for absolutely everyone? 
And uh, his teaching caused a huge controversy in Holland. Uh, he dies in 1609. The controversy rages after his death. Finally, in 1618, a synod is called at the Dutch town of Dordrecht, or Dort. And if you ever go, I've been to Dordrecht, uh, the, the actual building where the synod was held, no longer stands, but they have a huge sign on the, on the side of the building that is there presently, uh, giving details of this synod. Uh, in 1618 to 1619. The synod was an international synod. They invited Scottish theologians, uh, French Calvinist theologians. None of them were able to get out of the country. King of France refused to let them out. Uh, German theologians and English theologians. So it's very much an international conference, and they will issue a, 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 uh, a synodal declaration in which they will declare their commitment to five articles, um, which in English-speaking circles, we have abbreviated under the acronym TULIP. I'm, I'm not a big fan of the, the term. Uh, the word TULIP doesn't start being used until the 1890s. But TULIP, the T is total depravity, which indicates that every sphere of our life is fallen. And so there's nothing in our lives by itself that can recommend us to God's favor. Our emotions, our thinking, our will have all been touched by the fall. Total depravity does not mean we're the absolute worst we could be. That's obviously true. We're not. <clears throat> but it does mean that naturally speaking, none of us are Children and lovers of God, we're enemies of God, and we need to be converted, number one. Number two, uh, unconditional election, that God's saving work is not based on, oh, I know that person is going to choose me. It's unconditional. It's unmerited. Number three, uh, limited atonement. That's the most uh, controversial of them. Uh, this is one that Arminius definitely uh, denied. That is, Christ died for the elect. He died for his sheep. There is a sense in which, yes, his death is... Uh, it could, it, 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 because it is the death of one who is infinite, it could have been sufficient or could be sufficient for all mankind. But it actually, in actuality, it's efficacious only for the elect. And then irresistible grace... Um, which is when the Holy Spirit begins to work in you to draw you to Christ, it is irresistible. God does not treat us as automatons. He gives us a love for Christ and draws us to the Savior. And then finally, perseverance of the saints. All who are truly saved will persevere in Christ. Theologically, I would believe all those. I'm not sure I would use the same terms. Uh, I don't like the term limited atonement. It's not used by the Dutch theologians. Uh, I would prefer um, a particular redemption. Um, but then you've got a problem. If you put P there, you've got a tupip. <laughs> <laughs> right? In fact, I also like the word radical depravity. Because the word radical has the idea of radix, root. Uh, then you really got, you got rupip. <laughs> um, if you'd ask anybody 
do you believe in TULIP at that conference? They wouldn't know what you're talking about. They didn't use an acronym. But that's an acronym that's been used in, in uh, English-speaking circles since the 1890s. Um, theologically, I'm a Calvinist. Um, I had the most difficulty with particular redemption. I think I remember, I can still remember the conversation on the telephone with one of my students, about a three, four-hour conversation. At the beginning of it, I didn't believe it. At the end of it, yeah, I, I can see how that fits. Um, all that aside, um, Arminianism starts to come into England. The conference doesn't end it. The Synod of Dort does not end the, the controversy. And Charles begins to appoint Arminian leaders to high positions in the Church of England. Now, the Puritans are conscious, number one, when they disagree over church government and over worship thing, they're disagreeing with fellow Christians. Arminianism is a completely different story in their mind. Arminianism, John Owen would say, we'll talk about Owen later, Arminian will say, Arminianism is one step towards Roman Catholicism. And I think one of the problems that we have looking back at this period is the antagonism and the antipathy that Protestants have for Catholics and vice versa. But you have to remember um, in this period, uh, Catholics are killing Protestants. And on occasion, Protestants are killing Catholics. And uh, it's the same sort of thing you see with, in the Muslim world with Shiites and Sunni, the way they view each other, generally speaking. Although recently with the whole thing with uh, in uh, the Hamas-Gaza war, uh, it, it, there's an interesting twist on that, but that's off to the side. I mean, the, there's hatred of Protestants or Catholics and vice versa. From the Protestant point of view, Catholics are idolaters. They're children of the Antichrist. The Pope in Rome is the Antichrist. And that, that gives a, a, a real edge to all of this discussion. And Arminianism is one step towards that. She's a, Roman, she's a Roman Catholic. The mass is illegal in England. You cannot say the mass anywhere. The mass is being said in secret. So, for instance, the Duke of Norfolk, and I'm, I've never been able to figure out how he was able to... The, the whole family, for generations, stayed Catholic. The mass is being said all through this period. Secretly, they smuggle priests secretly into the country, and they, hide, they would hide them in what they call priest holes, little compartments or little apartments in the walls of houses. And because uh, the mass is illegal. It's illegal, but she is having the mass said in the, in, the, in the palace in London. The king allows her to say the mass, even though he's actually persecuting uh, Roman Catholics. He hangs around 15 Catholic priests. Meanwhile, he's got one in the palace saying the Mass for the Queen. Like, it's, it's very disturbing, the Puritans. The Puritans are thinking, we're one step away from going back to Rome. And then he appoints Laud. And Laud is an Arminian. And he likes certain things that the Catholics are doing. In addition to that, Laud starts to send out spies to churches. So we take our example again. This is St. West Highland. And we have a Puritan minister. 
And what that means is that in the worship service, there's going to be certain things I won't do. Maybe certain prayers I might not pray. Maybe I, I, when I'm praying, I might take the written prayer and elaborate on it. Now, this particular Sunday, there's, in the back there, there's a brother. I don't recognize him. Well, he's visiting. Maybe he's a relative. What I don't know is he's actually a spy from William Laud, and he's taking notes on everything I do. About a month later, I get an invite to see William Laud. And you might think initially, oh, that, that's, maybe he's going to favor me with something. The Archbishop is going to see it. Well, no, 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 no. You get down to London, and he had a chamber where he would meet disobedient ministers. It's called the Star Chamber. And you don't want to go into the Star Chamber, as it turns out. And you'll be warned. He says, I understand you're not using all the Book of Common Prayer, and you're not having people kneel. You're actually giving the Lord's Supper to them in their seats. That is expressly forbidden. And we trust you'll change your ways. A year later, there's another visitor. <laughs> it's not funny. Uh, there's another visitor, and you don't know him either, and by this time you might be paranoid. Like Every visitor comes in like, is, is he a real visitor, or is he from Laud? This one also is from Laud, and you haven't changed your ways. Your second invite down to the Star Chamber, uh, this one's not going to turn out so good. So William Prim. Puritan minister, got invited four or five times. In the process, he lost both his ears. Uh, well, Lord says, so, it seems to me you can't hear properly. We need to open up your hearing. And then they sliced his ear off. He continued in his Puritan ways, so they sliced his other ear off. And he continued in his Puritan ways. I have no idea what this did. They slit his nose. This is all going on in the 1630s. Uh, meanwhile, in 1629, uh, Charles had asked Parliament to give him money. He's got himself in a war with France. That's the other bad thing here, too. This, no offense, please. Uh, the English don't like the French, and the French don't like the English, and the animosity is really, really deep. And she's French. But even so, he gets himself in a war with her brother. He needs money for the war. Parliament refuses to give money, so he shuts Parliament down for 11 years. I can run England all by myself. So he's, he's running England by himself. He's got William Laud. Really, it's almost like a reign of terror. And a number of Puritans said, this is it. And entire congregations would leave England, go to Holland, Amsterdam, Rotterdam, Leiden. Uh... They usually don't stay in Holland. They, they might stay 10, 12 years. And then they find their children are becoming Dutch. <laughs> They're marrying Dutch men, Dutch girls. No, no, we want to remain our English. That's a challenge. And so they emigrate to New England. This is where all of the Puritans coming over to New England. Uh, Three-month voyage, sometimes in a ship. Uh, the hold of the ship would be smaller than this room. Can you imagine? Stuck in a ship on the ocean. It's, th these are really incredible people in many, many ways. And um, <clears throat> uh, we'll get to him later. Oliver Cromwell, um, 
many of his friends left England for what he called a howling wilderness in North America. And uh, William Laud in 1638 comes up with a brilliant idea. He says to the king, you are the king of Scotland, right? Yeah. Why don't we make Scotland have a book of common prayer? Oh, I like that. So, William Laud sets up uh, a, a uh, book of common prayer to be read in first in Edinburgh in St. Giles's Kirk. If you ever go to Edinburgh, it's, the, it's on the Royal Mile, running from Hollywood Palace all the way down. It's, on the, it's in the old city up on the, uh, what's called the Mound. This is the church that John Knox preached in. Right across the road is John Knox's house, which today is a fabulous museum. And so, uh, Lord appoints a man to lead the service. And um, if you're Scottish, you'd know this story. Well, at least I hope you know the story. It's a, it's a classic story from this period. Uh, most people didn't, they didn't have chairs or pews. You brought your own seat. And uh, the minister comes out to read the Book of Conqueror. He starts, and this woman, uh, Jenny Geddes, I think this is a later portrait of her. I don't think it's a genuine one going back to the period. Stands up, and she has a stool, which is purportedly there. That's it there. This is St. Giles's Kirk. That's supposedly the stool. She yells out, the mass! has come amongst us again, and she picks up the stool and whips it at the guy's head. <laughs> I mean, church history is fun, right? So that was the signal. People have brought bats and bricks and pieces of wood and a barrage of missiles to descend upon the poor guy. There he is, you the missiles descending. There's Jenny. And um, uh, the guy flees. And the Scottish ministers in, in Edinburgh go up to another church, uh, Greyfriars Kirk. You can still go there. And uh, if you ever see the, photo, the portraits of this, it's about 30 ministers on a table tomb. So it's one of these tombs that's raised up off the ground, and they're signing a document. Uh, it actually didn't happen that way. It was in the middle of winter. And they signed the document inside the church. Uh, you can see the document in the church. There's about five copies left. And about 500 Scottish ministers sign it. And it's, it's known as the Solemn League and Covenant, that they will fight to the death to defend the Scottish Presbyterian Church. And Charles has got a war. And it's the first bishop's war. 1638 to 1639, he loses it. Lord says, <laughs> no big deal. I, I think the Scots would really like to become Anglicans. So let's try it again. I mean, he's stupid. He's really politically stupid. They try, they do a second war, he loses that one too. Meanwhile, the Scots have come down and occupied Northern England, and they tell the king, we want reparations. Like you kill some of our men, you burn their farms, you're gonna pay for them. Well, the king hasn't got a penny. The only way he can get money is he has to recall parliament. So in 1640, he recalls Parliament. It's known as the Long Parliament because it lasts for 11 years without an election. The Puritans who come into Parliament, it's stuck with Puritans. Uh, by the way, how do people get elected in this period? 
Um, only men over the age of 21 who owned two or three acres of land could vote. So if this was a typical riding in that period, uh, about 300 men in this riding would vote. So it's very easy up and to get support. You just throw a big barbecue. William Wilberforce did this when he gets elected in the next century. Uh, he gets two big cows, throws a big barbecue, free, free beef and free beer. 400 men turn up. You're the man. <laughs> so he gets, he gets voted in. So Parliament is stuck with Puritans. And the Puritans say, number one, uh, it, it was stupid to get involved in those wars. First, number one. Number two, we love the Scottish Presbyterians. And we would advise you not to get involved in the wars. And we're not going to give you a penny until you stop the mass in the palace with your queen and you get rid of William Law. And it's a stalemate. It's a stalemate for two years. Until finally, uh, Charles, there's Charles. That's probably right before his death in 1649. And um, he, uh, he, in 1642, there's a number of ringleaders in Parliament, Puritans. He raids Parliament with his soldiers to arrest them. They've been given a warning. They flee. Charles, at that point, makes a major political mistake. He leaves London, goes to Oxford and Nottingham, and raises his standard, his battle standard, right there and declares war on Parliament, declares war on his own Parliament, and England is plunged into a civil war. And of all wars, no war is good, but of all wars, civil war is the worst. We are brother against brother, neighbor against neighbor. And for, for nine long years, from 1642 to 1653, uh, Charles finds himself fighting his own people um, again, he's stupid in the middle of it. He, leaves, he loses the first uh, section of the war at this battle, the Battle of Marston Moor. Uh, this is what the typical uh, Puritan soldier would look like. He normally shaved his head. They were known as round heads. Uh, notice the long hair. I would tell you he probably is a, a defender of the king. Um, he loses this battle. And um, in fact, by 1646, the Puritans have won, the Presbyterians have won, and the Presbyterians offer the king a parliamentary monarchy like we have today. No way. I've been divinely appointed by, by, by God. And meanwhile, his wife is still at large. He writes to his wife, do you think you could get some of your brother's troops to come to England? French, Roman Catholic troops to fight for me against my own people. And meanwhile, he's also written to Ireland and says, why don't you some Irish come over and fight with me? Now, if you know anything about the English and the Irish, the English view the Irish as subhuman. And they're Catholic. Meanwhile, he's also written to the Scots and says, you do remember I'm the king of Scotland. And if you guys come in on my side, I'll make England under your rule, Scottish Presbyterian. There's no, I mean, I don't know what he was thinking. There's no way all this could happen. The letters are intercepted. So let's say uh, our prime minister has problems in the country keeping law and order. Let's say there's a riot that gets out of hand in downtown Hamilton. Say Stony Creek. No offense if you're in Stony Creek. <laughs> and the police can't control it, so they call out the militia. They can't control it. And um, 
um, but eventually he phones Cutney and says to Cutney, yeah, I hear you've got some crack troops over there. Do you think you could bring over maybe a regiment? Uh, I, I've got these riots, they've got a riot in Stony Creek, and it's spreading across the country. It's in Winnipeg and, and Manit uh, Saskatoon. And the whole country's liable to go up in flames. We need your help. And if that was discovered, uh, we would probably imprison him for treason. Right? Making war on his own people. And so the king is put on trial. And in 1649, uh, he doesn't take the trial seriously. Uh, the Presbyterians, by the way, are not involved. It's the Congregationalists and the Baptists. The Baptists and Congregationalists are mostly committed Republicans. They want to get rid of the monarchy and the aristocracy. And the king is put on trial. He doesn't take any of it seriously. You can't try me until the last two or three days. Well, you realize these, these men are in earnest. And on uh, December, January the 30th, 1649, sentence has been passed, and he is publicly beheaded. And there's a picture of his decapitation. It took place publicly. We have, the, we have an eyewitness account by a man named Philip Henry, the father of Matthew Henry, the great Puritan commentator. Philip Henry was a Puritan, 16 years old. He was in London. He saw a huge crowd going towards where the execution was. He had no idea it was going to happen. He joined them. And he says, I hope to God I never witness anything like that again. He said the, the, the groan that went up from the people, just the horror of executing their king. And um, so most of the radical Puritans approved of it. And we'll get to that. But I want to bring you up then to 1649. The war would drag on for two more years. The Puritans would win the war, and England would be a republic for nine years. And then we'll, we'll see later how that, how that changes and what that means for the Puritans. Well, that's a lot. Well, let me close our time in, in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering like this in freedom. We thank you for the fact that we have a heritage that we can look back to and learn from, we pray. And we do pray that in our tumultuous days that you would help us to be men and women of truth, but also desirous of peace. And pray your blessing and presence with us throughout this week. For Christ's sake. Amen.